Genesis chapter 32. Kelly is going to come read for us verses 1 to 21 this morning. So Genesis chapter 32, verses 1 to 21. Everybody there? You there? No? Almost. All right. She'll wait a second. You need a Bible? We got extra Bibles. Let's snag one from over here. Anybody else need a Bible? You guys got one in your row? Genesis is easy to find. It just goes, you open your Bible to, there you go. Genesis. Good. All right. Genesis 32. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are four hundred men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to the camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong, where are you going, and whose are these ahead of you, then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau, and moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him, and you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us, for he thought... I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. This is the word of the Lord. Fear. Anxiousness distress, 
I wonder if any of us in the past week, day, month, year, have experienced some level or some degree of fear. Fears can be rational and fears can be irrational, right? I mean, we got kids in here, we got teenagers in here, and sometimes maybe you're fearful of something and your mom would have to tell you, well, monsters don't really exist, so you don't have to be afraid, right? You get a little older, maybe you get afraid of speaking in public. But there's a lot of different ways that fears can grip us and come from different angles, and they are real, and I think it helps us. I'm glad that the Spirit told Peter to write what he wrote in 1 Peter 3, because it gives us an idea that sometimes fears are rational, and God knows they are. Here's what Peter writes. The context is to uh, husbands and caring for their wives. But look how verse 6 goes. Um, I think it's going to be projected behind me. It just says this, As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Then the last sentence goes, You are her children. If you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. We don't have that slide, Jordan. Do not fear anything that is frightening. That means there's legitimate things that are frightening. There are things we face that are legitimately frightening, real things that are frightening. Sometimes we can be afraid of just the unknown. We don't know what's going to happen next or in certain situations. Because it's rational, because probably in our future there are things that are going to be sad and hard to deal with in our future. And so there are real things to probably fear. Sometimes it's life being out of control. We feel like it's out of control, and we can be fearful. And that's because life is out of our control. (laughs) We can be fearful of making mistakes, because we know we will make mistakes. We can have fear of living in a way that might turn others away from Jesus. We can have the fear of messing up our kids. Parents, you will mess up your kids. I mean, it's just a reality. There are things we're going to do that aren't going to represent Jesus like they should. There's the fear over our grandkids and whether they will follow the world or Jesus. There's health fears, which are rational because we're not getting any healthier, (laughs) at least at my age. It's happening. So there's some fears that really are legit. There's relational fears that we can battle with day in and day out. And then there's those other fears, those distresses, those things that aren't rational at all. And I'm not going to list those because I don't want to put the thoughts in your head (laughs) and add to your already lengthy, irrational list of fears. (laughs) But there are those things that will never happen. And yet at times, they can make us really nervous and anxious. And sometimes these things can affect us in minor ways or in major ways. Sometimes it's sleepless nights, anxiety attacks, things that disable us, stop us from even functioning in daily life. But I think it's true that all of us, to some degree, at some times, in various ways, experience fears and anxieties. We find our lives filled with some sort of distress. And that's what's happening to Jacob here in verse 7. Look at verse 7 with me. It says, Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He was greatly afraid and he was distressed. Jacob is on a roller coaster of emotions that at this point in his life has landed him in a place of great fear and distress. So what we're going to do this morning is look at what it is that was going on in his life that caused him great fear and distress. What does he do about it? And what in that can we learn so we know what to do when we're afraid? 
when we find ourselves in some degree of distress. So if you're taking notes, I would say this is probably the first thing that we just need to uh, believe this morning, and that is that God knows and understands the great fears and distress we face. He does. He knows and he understands that we, as humans, are going to be filled with times of fear. Hebrews 4 says this. We don't have this to project, but Hebrews 4 says this. It says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. So he was tempted to distress. He was tempted. He didn't sin in it, but he was tempted to fear and to distress. And we know in Mark that Jesus went to the garden and it said he began to be greatly distressed. Remember when he sweats drops of blood? So he experienced great distress. So you have a God who is empathetic and sympathetic with you when you're fearful. He's not shaking his finger going, stop it! He understands. He understands we're human and that we're weak. But before we look into Jacob's fear, I want you to notice just the roller coaster. I find this helpful because if you're anything like me, my life can often feel like a roller coaster of emotions. Doing really well and then filled with fear. Doing really well and feeling, fe- feeling fearful. And that's kind of what happens here. We ended chapter 31 last week where Jacob is making this uh, a covenant with Laban. And he's finally getting separated from his father-in-law slash boss. I don't know if you've ever had a situation that lasted a year and you hated it and you couldn't wait to get away from it or two years or three years or five years or 10 years. This is 20 years where every day he's probably thinking, how can I get away from this dude? How can I get away from him? He's, he's changing my salary. He's tricking me with his daughters. And then finally at the end of chapter 31, ah, I'm free. No more living under his thumb anymore. And then, so this is all good news. They make a covenant. Uh, if you guys caught it, look back at 31, uh, chapter 31, verse 52. It says he makes this rock pile. I love it how they keep making rock piles throughout Genesis. Uh, this heap of rocks, he says, is a witness and the pillars a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. So in other words, whew, I don't have to worry about being harmed anymore. And then chapter 32 begins with this dispatch of angels, a multitude of angels to the point that Jacob concludes, I've got, basically the word there is for two camps. I've got my camp of people, and now there's this camp of hundreds of angels around me. So, I mean, life is good for Jacob at this point, right? Everything is going for him. He's protected from uh, Jacob. He doesn't have to face him anymore. And then finally, he, he has these angels surrounding him. In fact, his life really has been bookended with angels. Do you remember when he left home, what happened? Remember the whole ladder staircase thing? So he leaves home, and this, this party of angels, hey, I'm with you. And now he's getting ready to head back home, and the first thing that happens is another party of angels come to meet him. I mean, his life literally is bookended at this part of his life by a multitude of angels coming to show him that God is with him, and these angels are on his side. So if you were headed into the unknown with a multitude of angels on your side and having now gotten behind you, your arch enemy, if you will, (laughs) you feel pretty good. And I think Jacob feels pretty good. Stuff's on his side. Things are going his way. And in verses three through six, he immediately sends his own messengers to meet Esau. 
he wants him to go to Esau. And in verse 5, he tells us his intent is he wants to find favor in his sight. He wants to find favor in his sight. He wants to be a servant. He's like, hey, everything's going for me. This is my chance to reconcile with my brother. And so he's like, hey, while things are going in my way, let's jump on the bandwagon. Let's make this right. Let's get my relationship with Esau where it should be. So he's full of faith. He's trusting God. He's moving away from his past mess and his hurts and his stress and his fears. And he's heading into a new bright future. You ever been there? Yes. Turn the corner. Here we go. But then we get to verse 6. And verse 6 comes the bad news. And then the messengers return to Jacob, saying, We have come to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Basically, that's an army. That would be another way of saying it. there's an army coming. 400 was like a nice round number of this is, this is our troops are coming in. And so his response is he becomes now all of a sudden he is greatly fearful and he is distressed. He knows that Esau is coming to take revenge. 20 years of stored up anger. (laughs) And he's like, I'm ready. He's ready to unleash on him and to really slaughter him. And remember, the whole reason that Jacob left in the first place was because of what he did to his brother. Right? Stealing his birthright, stealing the blessing. So he knows what's coming to him, and it's just been a matter of time, and now here it is. Finally, it's going to happen. And so he's afraid. Best we can tell, it hasn't been very long. This is the unique part. I think he just finished this covenant of peace with Laban. So it's like, the past is done. I'm moving on to a good future. And it's almost immediately, angels show up, and then the next thing you know, oh, and Jacob's coming, or Esau's coming too. I mean, talk about the roller coasters of life. Have you been there, right? You finally, turning the corner. That thing that I was afraid of, it's done. Only to find yourself immediately faced with something else terrible. Something else hard to face. And that one ends, and then you face another one. And another one. Then there's good news, and yes! And then something else happens that brings distress and fear. I mean, that's, that's life, my friends. I think I love it that we don't sugarcoat Jacob here. Like, this is what he's going through. He's going through the ups and downs, the emotional drama and trauma of life's hurts and pains. And so he's greatly distressed. Now, I think, at least as I'm preparing this sermon, or as I'm just reading through my Bible, it's easy sometimes to just pass over phrases quickly. I don't know if you're like that. I can. But I think when you get to these words, greatly afraid and distressed, I think the Spirit wants the reader, that's us, to just pause and just realize how that stands out so much from what he had been feeling moments before the news came. You ever been there? Everything's going well, and then the news comes, whatever that news might be, whatever form it might come in, and then suddenly he is greatly afraid and distressed. I think we're meant to slow down when we get there. I think this is the key to being a good, loving friend. It is to be listening for emotionally charged words. (laughs) He is greatly distressed. He is greatly afraid. These aren't hollow words. These are real. He's a real person experiencing real anxiety and emotions and fear. He really is in a mess. 
And very often we find ourselves in a mess that can bring us fear too. So I think we should identify and perhaps even empathize with Jacob in his current situation. After all, I think his fear is rational, right? If I had 400 guys coming after me, I'd be pretty fearful and distressed. (laughs) So it's rational. So I think we can address rational fears here. I think that's what Jacob is going to do here in this story. 400 men heading to kill him is a pretty big deal. So no wonder we see him in verses 7 and 8 frantically and pantically dividing up his people and his stuff. It's interesting here. He divides his stuff into two camps. Remember how he, the angels, there's two camps, his camp and the angels are a camp. And so what he does here, he divides up his camp into two camps. So there's this two camp theme that runs through this story, hoping that if Esau attacks, maybe at least one of the camps will escape, right? He's diversifying his portfolio, which seems like a wise thing to do. And we can often do the same thing, right? Be practical. What do I do in this fear? How do, I, how do I make this fear go away? But what Jacob does next is he addresses his heart. And this is both surprising and helpful. I mean, if, if we did a character study of Jacob, it's not been good, has it? I mean, he really is a liar and a cheat, And yet he does something here that really is helpful and it really is shocking based on the behavior we've seen in him in the past. I want you to look at what he does in verse 9. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord. What's he doing? What's he doing? Yeah, he's turning to God. This is the first time in Jacob's life that we see him turning to God. This is the first time we see him praying. This is the first time we see Jacob acknowledging that he wants God, needs God, to be on his side. So he turns to God. This is no small thing. If you are here this morning and you have turned to God... In your fear and in your distress, you need to have someone say to you, well done. Well done. Jacob needs to hear a well done here. Now you might be thinking, yeah, I turn to God in my fear, but I don't do it enough, or I don't do it long enough, or I don't do it wholeheartedly enough. Listen, put those thoughts aside. Put them aside. Let me come slap you. Put them aside. Those thoughts need to go aside. And you need to recognize that in your distress and in your fear, even if you just turn to God a tiny bit, that you need to hear well done. That that is the direction you need to go. Turn to God. Turn to him. So in your fear and distress, if you're taking notes, I would say this, turn to God. I'm going to give you five things I see here about what we do when we're facing fear, whether they're rational or irrational. These five things are not in order. These five things are not a formula. It's not like you better do one through five or or he doesn't hear you, okay? I'm not going to turn this into, this is how Christ church prays. This is just examples and things to learn from. So as soon as you hear the first one that helps you, you can leave. (laughs) He says, all I needed to hear, you grab a donut and go. 
So I don't want anybody to think this is like, oh, we're taking this prayer and we're turning it into the way to pray. It's not the deal. But there's some things that I found really helpful this week, things that I did which helped me in my fear and distress. And so I, I wanted to share them with you, and I hope that helps you. So the first thing is really this. In your great fear and distress, turn to God. Listen, God loves it when you turn to him. He loves it. That is the reason Jesus died. He died so you could turn to God. So apply the work of the gospel to your life and turn to God. Go to him. He loves it when you do that. He loves to take the work of Christ and to see it active on the earth through our lives. So turn to him. Hebrews chapter 4 says this. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every way has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Three words there at the end I love. Mercy, grace, and help. In your time of need, he brings mercy, he brings grace, and he brings help. And he's sitting on his throne of grace, eagerly anticipating with joy that we come to him when we fear fearful and distressed. He's not shaking his finger. He's not going seriously again. He's there, eager to listen to you and to receive you and to give you mercy and grace and help that you need. And so, now that Jacob is taking his fear, of God, fear to God, which is a wonderful thing, listen to specifically what he says in verse 9. He says, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. Okay, so what is Jacob doing here? He's reminding God of what God said because Jacob knows that God forgets. I mean, come on, who is this benefiting? Yeah, it's benefiting Jacob. Repeating back to God, the promise that God made to you isn't so God will remember. It's to help us remember. It's to help us to go, oh yeah, God made these promises. And these promises rub hard against my fear and my distress. And I want that to happen. There needs to be a head-on collision between my fear and distress and something God has done or promised. And so that's where Jacob goes. That's where he goes first. He reminds God of his promise. In fact, he ends his prayer that way. Look at verse 13. He's going to bookend his prayer with just reminding God of his promises. But you said... God, you said this, God, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the seashore, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he bookends his prayer with God. You made a promise to me and I'm banking on that promise and I'm using this promise to help take away my fear and my distress. It's a shame, though, that we don't have any promises like that, isn't it? We do, and I hope you do. I honestly hope that you have one that's unique to your situation, that you have hidden away in your heart, that you pull out when you face fear and distress. I hope you do. I mean, there's broad sweeping stroke ones in Scripture, which are wonderful. Casey read one this morning from Psalm 139, which is just amazing. He's hemming me in both behind and before, and his hand is on me. I mean, that's true for us. And Romans tells us a bunch of stuff. Sorry, something's gone wrong. 
I think. I think. Did I say serious? Here's a promise that we can cling to. And like I said, I think there's many more, but I love this one and I had to share it with you this morning. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Remember from last week, you may not always see it that way. I don't always see it that way, but it's true. And you got to remind yourself, God, you promised that all things will work together for my good. And then he's going to go on for those who are called according to his purpose. That's us. For those who he foreknew. I mean, this is just some of the goodness that he's bringing to our attention. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And then he says this, then, what then shall we say to these things? This is one that Jordan read this morning. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not graciously give us some things? All, man, all. That means everything you need today and tomorrow, he is going to give you. And those things are going to be the things that you need in order to fight your fears and to fight your distress. And so repeat the promises of God back to God. Please, my friends. Do it. Do it. And if you need help, that's why we need community. Find someone else to say, here's my fear. Help me. Where would you go in God's word to find a promise to help me to believe something true about who Jesus is, what he's done, what he's doing or will do, that help me deal with this stress, this distress and this fear that I'm facing? And so Jacob does that. And then Jacob transitions in verse 10. If you're taking notes, you can say this. He also talks to God about all the past blessings. Look at verse 10. Here's what he says next. He says, I know I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that I have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become, here we go again with that phrase, I become two camps. So what does he do? He reminds God of his past blessings, or probably better said, who is he really reminding? He's reminding himself. He's reminding himself of all the things God has done in the past for him, all the ways that God has blessed him, the countless deeds of steadfast love and faithfulness. And then he gives us one category, in case you're lacking categories, one way that he has seen God give him steadfast love and faithfulness in verse 10. He says, For with my, only with my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have two camps. Now, when I hear that, I can only think of one thing, and that is, I entered this world with nothing, and I will leave this world with nothing, but right now I have a lot. I'm like Jacob. I came with nothing. I don't know if any of you were born with more than just nothing, but nothing. I came in this world with nothing, and yet look what I have now. And you can say, why do I have all this now? Well, it's because of God's steadfast love and faithfulness. That's why we have what we have. And that's where my heart and mind need to go. God, look at all that I have. Look at all that you've done. 
I came into this world with nothing, and look how you've taken care of me and provided for me. And I want you to notice that these blessings that Jacob experiences are not anchored in the character of himself, but in the character of God. So if you're taking notes, I would say a fourth thing here. In your great fear and distress, recall God's character to God. Don't recall yours. Don't say, God, help me in my fear and distress because yesterday I read my Bible for 10 minutes. Yesterday I didn't sin or lie. Yesterday I didn't do this or I didn't do that. Yesterday I did do these things, so God, listen to me. You know, he appeals to God's character. But first, he recalls his character in verse 10. I am not worthy. All the blessings that I have, all the things you've given for me, he first starts out with, I am not worthy. Listen, when we think we are deserving or have somehow earned God's help in our time of need and distress, you've fallen away from grace. That's what's happened. If you're relating to God based on thinking somehow you have walked yourself up the worthy ladder, then you have fallen away from grace. Don't be aware when you think things like, don't I deserve better than this? I know none of us has ever said that. I have. Don't I deserve better than this? After all I've done, doesn't something have to go right soon? You can think that way. Doesn't God owe me in some way? We don't want to relate to God that way. So be aware of anything in your heart that might relate to God based on your works or your character or behavior, because if you do, it is a bottomless pit and it's hopeless. Hopeless. So follow Jacob's example here, I think, and have this as a reality. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds that God has done for me. I am not worthy of anything that I have. So take the smallest, least costly, least significant deed that God has done for you and realize you're not worthy even of that. I was thinking about this in the form of stuff. I was thinking, what are the stuff that I have that's worth the least? There may be more but I went in my garage and I found an old screw. This may be the least expensive thing or the least, or maybe the worthless thing I have. Elspeth said she thought for her it might be a paperclip. Unless you're Ernie or Bert. Who collects paperclips? <laughs> Is Sesame Street gone or what? <laughs> Didn't Ernie or Bert collect paperclips? Nobody knows? Oh my goodness. All right. I'm, I'm showing how old I am. Reality is, I am not worthy of the least of these. I mean, I don't even deserve a paperclip from God. I don't deserve an old, rusty screw from God. I am not worthy of either of these. Now, I'm going to pastor you for just a moment here. Because I know there's a worm theology that some of you have perhaps been under. And so we need to face that head on. Because some of you, I think, walk around perhaps with your mind dominated every day with thoughts like, I am worthless, or I am nothing, or nothing I do ever pleases God, or I'm a failure 99% of the time. And those are real thoughts that run through your head nonstop, like a tape that keeps going around and around. 
Now, Genesis 32 doesn't exactly address this issue, but God addresses it plenty of other places in his word. And some of you, I think, need to hear that there's a difference between being unworthy and being worthless. They're different. Being unworthy of the blessings of God does not make you worthless. Listen, you are a precious child of God. You have worth from the littlest kid in here to the oldest. God loves you. You are his dear son and daughter. He rejoices over you in loud singing. His heart beats with joyful, incomprehensible love for you. And this is important. His loving and adopting you and blessing you is just because you are you. That's it. It's just because you're you. He loves you. He chose you. He cares for you. And his love for you is great love because it's not based in your character. It's based in his character. So you can count on it. He loves you. And so what does Jacob do here? I think we can learn from the fact that he doesn't linger long over his unworthiness. He recognizes it. Yep, I am unworthy. But then he quickly transitions to the character of God. He goes from his unworthiness to how much God is worth. I wonder if that should be a trigger in our mind, right? And you guys have muscle memory that we do athletic events or something to try to get muscle memory. We need muscle memory in our brain that maybe when you hear the word worthless pop into your head, it needs to just be met very quickly by something about God's love for you. No, he cares for you. His hand is on your life. Maybe when you think I'm worth it, you think God is worth everything. Maybe that's the trigger. It's a transition from my character to his. Who I am in my own mind to who he is. And then how he sees me. So God's deeds to Jacob and God's deeds to you are based in his steadfast love and faithfulness. His steadfast love and faithfulness. So relate to him that way. When you go to God with your fear, let him know you're appealing to his faithfulness. You're faithful. I'm not. My love is not steadfast, but yours is. And so I'm banking on you being faithful. I'm banking on your love being steadfast. Otherwise, I'm going to live in fear and distress the rest of my life. And so look to him, turn to him, remind him of his character, of his steadfast love, and of his faithfulness. And lastly, notice that Jacob doesn't shy away from asking for deliverance. I mean, he does get there, right? So when you're great distress, ask for deliverance. He says, please deliver me from the hand of my brother Esau. <laughs> deliver me, deliver me, for I fear him that he may come and attack me. I don't know if you just have open-ended conversations with God where you just share with him exactly what it is you need him to do. <laughs> do it. <laughs> do it. <laughs> share with him. Say, here's, here's what I need. Here's what I need you to do. I mean, he is facing certain death from his perspective. And who knows? Who knows what happened from the time that he left Esau with his 400 men and what happened between then and the moment that he gets to Jacob? I don't know what happened. 
in that window of time. I don't know what God did as a result of this interaction that Jacob has with God that changes Esau's heart. Maybe Esau's on the way to kill. We're going to find out that he doesn't. Spoiler alert. But he doesn't. So what's going on here? Well, he asked, just deliver me. Deliver my brother. He, he recognizes he can't deliver himself from his brother. God's got to do a heart work in his brother. And so he turns to God. He needs deliverance. He needs deliverance from death. He needs to deliver from the consequences of his own sin. I mean, what's getting him pursued by Esau is his own mess. It's his fault. I mean, some of us, you read the story and you go, he's finally going to get what he deserves <laughs> after what he did. And I'm sure he's thinking that. Like, okay, here it comes. The hammer's coming down. Justice. This is it. And so he appeals to God. I don't want to pay the penalty for my sins. I don't want to get crushed by my brother. I need you to deliver me. So what this morning is bringing you fear? What do you believe you need to be delivered from this morning? Is there something that's causing you great distress? I don't know whether it's something specific that God, you want God to deliver you from, or whether you just need God to deliver you from the distress that's attached to the thing that's happening. <laughs> or maybe it's both. Maybe it's a circumstance that needs to change, and maybe it's your heart that you want God to change. But that's where Jacob goes. And I want to encourage you to do the same thing. You've got a God who loves you, cares for you, is on your side. He's interacting with you based on his character, not yours. So turn to him. Go to him. I think it's helpful for us to know that the one who delivered you once in the past can deliver you again in the future. The one who delivered us in the past can deliver us from tomorrow. He can. And we're to turn to him with that. And you know, and I'm just reminding you, that the greatest thing that we should fear is the throne that we're going to stand in front of when we die. I mean, let's put our fears in perspective, okay? <laughs> that is the one legitimate fear. One day, you will stand before God. And one day, you will be judged. And either you will be under the wrath of God or you will be under the grace of God. Either you will be under the furious anger of God or you'll be covered by the blood of Christ. You can escape that through faith in Jesus. You believe in him. You put your trust in him. You say, Jesus, you are my everything. You're the only hope I have to escape this greatest fear, which is the wrath of God. And then for those, who, those of us who have done that, we say, and because you've taken care of that fear and you've helped me with that fear, and you've reconciled that fear, then certainly you can take care of all these little baby fears that are in comparison. I did find it helpful for me personally this week to go there, to say, okay, here are the things I'm afraid of, and then to realize one day, and it's coming quick, I'll be dead and in heaven with God and Jesus be there together, and there's never going to be anything to be afraid of again. <laughs> There'll be no more fear and no more distress. And taking your heart there does something to help you deal with the fear and the distress you're dealing with now. It does it. And I think it's because we know there is power in the gospel. 
There's power in the blood of Christ. There's power in what he's done for us. And so by taking your heart there in your distress and your fear, it has power to help you to deal with the fear and the distress that you're dealing with today on earth. Does that make sense? So go there. Go there. So there's five things. Do them in any order you want. Leave some out. Do some of the others. But I think this is helpful. This is what happens to Jacob. And so next week we're going to see actually what, what goes down. We're going to continue the story next week. But what I want to encourage you to do this week is to go to God with your fears. Learn to go to him in your fear. Turn to him, maybe like you've never done before, in your fear, and allow God to help you and to meet you. What I want to do is I want to pray for you this morning, and I want to pray over us, and then I want to invite anyone who wants specific prayer, you can obviously turn to anybody in the room you want to. And I think it'd be really, really good and healthy if some of you here this morning who have been living gripped by some kind of fear or distress to just turn to someone else that you know and trust or come to Tyler or Jordan or I and and just say, look, you don't have to tell us the details. Just say, I got a fear that it just, I really wish would just go away. And let us just lay hands on you and pray for you. Just let us pray that fear out of here. Let's pray it gone. But I wanna, I'm going to pray that over you right now, and then I'm gonna, we're going to sing. And as we're singing, if you want to, we can pray for you while we're singing, or you can wait till we're done and we're, everyone's leaving. We can come up, we'll be up here, you can come up here. I just want to pray for you. I, I, I think there can be a bondage of fear. I think there's times when we can just be bound up by it, and it's just, it stinks. And I just wouldn't want to see anybody leave here this morning not without just an extra dose of I guess, faith that God can set you free from whatever fear is tying you up and, uh, and allow you to live with more freedom in, in trusting him. So let me pray. Band's going to come. We're going to sing. And then if you want more prayer, please find us. Almighty God, I, I just pray for my friends in this room. Lord, I know that fear and distress and anxiety can be um, life-altering, that there's things that can grip our hearts in such a way that we can be terrified and, and can cause anxiety attacks and make us not live the way that you want us to live. And so I pray for my friends in this room. God, I pray right now that whether the fears are small and infrequent or whether they're large and dominating, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would flood this room and flood our hearts. I pray, Spirit, that you would drive out fear I pray, Spirit, that you would put fear in its rightful place for anyone who has irrational fears. God, I I pray that your Spirit would give hope to those who feel like they could never be set free from being a fearful person. I pray you'd give them hope. And I pray that you would pour down on them the reality that you are for them and that you are with them. I pray that you'd remind them this morning of your character, of your faithfulness, and of your steadfast love, and that that would drive out their fears. That your faithfulness, God, right now, your steadfast love right now would drive fear from hearts. Drive it away. Spirit, be present. I I pray you would do a good work. I pray none of us would leave here this morning 
fearful in any way like we came. May we be changed. Even as we're singing this song, I pray there would just be a flood of freedom, a release from fear, a release from distress, and just a pouring down of your your love and your faithfulness that would give us great hope and trust. So meet us, I pray. Meet us, each one of us, individually this morning. Speak to us over whatever specific fear we have and give us a promise. Give us a truth about Jesus that we can cling to and believe that will help fear be put to death. Do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.